The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. It has been said that we are but one generation away from forgetting our history. Welcome to American Heroes Network, where we serve our American tradition with Gary Ray. In our program, you will hear firsthand the personal accounts of heroes whose unselfish actions have contributed to the traditions and values that represent the soul of America. You'll also hear from our partners and affiliations presenting news events and ways that our veterans and their families can rebuild their lives. Now, here is Gary Ray. Today is September 27, 2016, and good morning and welcome to the American Heroes Network Radio. Today's show is brought to you by First Class Merchant Services. It's all about customer care and saving you money on your monthly transaction fees. They are a national company, so give them a call right after the show. It's 407 407- Four zero one zero seven seven two. Joining me today as co-host is Lieutenant Colonel Bill Forbes, U.S. Army retired, former Deputy Secretary for the Maryland Department of Veterans Affairs, also past Department Commander for the DAV State of Maryland. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Gary, and it's great to be with you as always. All right, I appreciate that. I want to remind everyone to go to our news section or the VSBchannel.com and learn how you can help save a veteran's life with your participation in the national campaign called Donate 22 Today Campaign. And you can create a video donating $22 to the VSP channel and share it with others, asking them to donate the $22 also. You will also find information about a one of a kind fundraiser called Cooking for Veterans Mental and Physical Health. And what they teach you and the veterans is how to use foods to elevate symptoms associated with depression, anxiety, and PTSD, as well as physical ailments like TBI, high blood pressure, and diabetes. With more than 8,030 veterans that take their lives every year, we need to stop this epidemic. Well, let's go ahead and move on with the show. This hour is going to fly by, gentlemen. I'd like to introduce Mr. Glenn Towery, founder and president from the VSP channel and developer of a new position that we're going to talk about today called the National Suicide Prevention Officer. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you this morning, Gary? And hello, Wilbert. How are you? Great. (laughs) Great to be with you again, Glenn. All right. Fantastic. Now, uh, Glenn, how did you come up with this uh, and develop this new position? Tell us a little bit about it. Well, you know, um, when I came up with the idea for the channel, I began to really think about how we can begin to address the crisis that is plaguing our nation of veterans killing themselves. And I thought to myself one day, well, the best, one of the best ways in order to be able to do it would be through veteran service organizations, which comprise a, a large percentage of the, uh, America's veterans belong to these organizations when you add up all the numbers together. So I thought, what, what is missing here? What's missing in this picture? And this idea hit me that we could create uh, national officers to address the crisis 
that America was experiencing, is experiencing right now. And I came up with the name called Veterans Suicide Prevention Safety Officer at that time. Mm-hmm. I belong to uh, the VFW, uh, the DAV, the American Legion, um, and I decided to write resolutions and send them to those organizations to see if those re- resolutions would proceed further. And I was actually appointed by the DAV, uh, the Department of Texas Suicide Prevention Officer, at one point. And since uh, it's been rescinded since, but I'm, I actually did become the very first suicide prevention officer in, in America, but it was for a department. Um, so what I began to do was to think about how a program that work through veteran service organizations would look. And one of the big features that uh, I thought about was prevention and intervention and what that would look like uh, by an officer in, that was created in one of those organizations. And the other thing I began to look at and I began to ask around and talk to people was that these organizations have no idea how many of their members are committing suicide because they do not have the structure, reporting structure in their organization to report that. And I thought, well, this could be uh, additional great statistical information that could create awareness within the organization as well. And with these suicide prevention officers and with reporting, they could actually gauge how successful this program would be in their organization as they move forward. Now, it's a difficult thing to ask an organization. Uh, some of these veteran service organizations have been around many, many years, way before I was born. <laughs> and they've been doing business in a certain way. They, they've had their structure. They've had their officers. Their, their entire nomenclature has been set up and run that way for a long time, and you have old guard people there that believe, you know, in that structure and in the way that they operate. So when I introduced this idea um, to certain organizations, uh, there was resistance. You know, I, they started telling me things like, well, you know, we don't need this uh, suicide prevention officer because the chaplain does that. And I went and I looked up for these organizations, the duties, because they have the duties written out, you know, and I didn't see that duty in there. Um, and um, so what began to happen was um, an, an understanding that there is a need for any wonderful, great veterans organization to be able to address a crisis. Now, let me just say this. Uh, I know we're waiting on Charles Eggleston to come on board. Charles Eggleston has become the very first national suicide prevention officer for the Military Order of the Purple Heart. And he did so because uh, Mr. Wilbert Forbes, who's on the phone, uh, made him aware of the program that I had articulated at that time and then written out. And uh, after studying the program, he went to his people, and I guess he shared that program with them, and they decided that they liked the program. 
they are the first organization to truly embrace the creation of suicide prevention officers in their organization. And I think that it is fantastic for them to take that, um, that leadership uh, position. So I, I hope that uh, I know that he is in a uh, he's chairing a committee in Washington D.C. today. He told me that he would definitely would be trying to make this interview, but uh, he's not here as of yet. So, but I hope that he is here so that your listeners can hear what he has to say. Mm-hmm. So, uh, getting back to that last portion that I was saying, any great organization or government, when faced with a crisis has to show the ability or should show the ability to be able to construe itself in a way to address that crisis. And so these structures that some of these older VSOs have right now, they have been sufficient, you know, and operated sufficiently when there wasn't a veteran suicide crisis. But now there is. Right. And exactly. so what this suicide prevention officer position does is allows any organization, the DAV, the VFW, Military Order of the Purple Heart, AMVETS, to have a way to address this problem and also find out just how deep the problem is um, in their own membership. Right. And I can see where this can help. Um, and tell me if I'm uh, wrong or right on this, uh, that where you have, again, there's only 21 states reporting the 22 uh, suicides every day. And uh, where these officers could be, uh, such as the state of California or Texas, that don't have that reporting uh, scenario, uh, they, could, they could keep track of additional suicides to help uh, stop this epidemic. Is that correct? That is correct. Not only that, um, they can make known that um, it's basically declaring war on the crisis. It's basically mm-hmm. saying we're going to take a proactive um, stance as it regards this veteran suicide. We are going to let our membership, our members know that we care about them, that we know that there's a crisis here, and we're providing officers. If a veteran becomes suicidal, there's a place, a local place with people that they know who are concerned, who will address this issue, who have referral information, who are um, trained in um, crisis intervention you know, that at the moment when it's really needed, who also know how to get their membership, their members, to a person, a professional person that can give them help to get them past the crisis because what happens in a lot of instances is that you can't get past that crisis, and if you don't get past that crisis, then, you know, it usually results in suicide. That's correct. Bill? Well, gentlemen, as you know, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs declared that this year, the month of September, as Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And uh, I must tell you that uh, on this end of the country where I am in the the, uh, east, uh, the, uh, there's not been a lot known about this, but uh, through Glenn's efforts, with making posts on uh, 
this Facebook page and on the VSP channel, uh, this uh, uh, information has received uh, phenomenal uh, attention to the fact that something is out there and in the operation uh, that they can go to uh, veterans primarily and family members to get information. It's been a tremendous success. We're in the final days of the month right now. And, uh, um, you know, uh, the three of us, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago, we had the opportunity to be a guest on a radio show in Southern California to be able to talk about uh, uh, suicide prevention and the awareness portion of it. And I think it was tremendously received by the uh, host of the show, and hopefully that uh, information has been able to move about in that particular community. But I think what's, what's important here is that this being the first year, Suicide Prevention Month, this effort of awareness about suicides cannot, in my opinion, end at the month of September. This is something that's got to continue on because the suicides are continuing. And I think our press in this effort has to be even more vigorous as we go along. So, uh, uh, Glenn, some of the things that you've talked about in terms of what the channel is doing, I think that that's got to be further highlighted to continue on on a day-to-day basis. I mean, this effort has got to go on like this is suicide uh, prevention awareness year as opposed to the month. Right, every month. Yeah, I agree. I agree because, you know, we keep uh, hearing that, oh, uh, 22 a day are committing suicide or killing themselves. But, you know, we just hear that number, and we forget to look at the human element of the exacting toll that this takes on people, that it takes on our resources of people. These people have given themselves to the military experience to protect our nation. These are real people. These aren't numbers. These are living, breathing, caring people. And it's unfortunate that we have to reduce them to a number because I guarantee you that if anybody who is listening ever had the opportunity to get to know the 22 people who will commit suicide today, they would begin to understand just what a terrible plight this is and what a terrible waste of humanity this is and how we have to stop sitting around acting as though, oh, this is normalcy. No, this is not normalcy. We have to act like this is a crisis. We have to gear ourselves up and we have to fight this. We have to fight it with everything that we've got because the people that are killing themselves would die for us. When they signed up and they joined the military, they knew that that was a possibility, that they could be sent into harm's way. And they, they've signed up to do that because this is a volunteer force now. No one is drafted these days. That's, That's why, to me, veterans are very, very special people because it takes a very special person to say, I will put myself in harm's way to protect 
So we have to protect them. The same thing that they do for us when they go overseas, when they put themselves in arms way, when they just volunteer to do that, whether or not they ever do it at all, you know, they, at that time, when they sign up to do that, when they go and they do that, when they serve, then at the same time, then they deserve for us to do everything possible that we can do to protect them. And what's happening right now, for some reason, and I'm not saying that it's been done on purpose, but they are not protected. So we have to stop sitting around acting like, okay, well, this is normal. 22 died today. 22 people killed themselves today. Veterans, what can we do about it? Hey, we need to find out what we can do about it, and we need to do it. And that's the reason why I say with with some people with the suicide prevention officer program, you know, there's some people that say, oh, well, you know, well, what can that do? Well, I will say this to you. It's better than doing nothing. And even if this is a program that you, that you may have doubts about, you know what? It's a good start. And a good start, we can start this program and begin to work, to begin to work at it and, you know, evolve it into something that's effective. Nothing starts off totally effective, but, you know, everything is by, you know, we begin to learn when we try. But if we sit around and we don't try, we'll never learn. That's true. You know, I know there's uh, VSO members out there listening. How does how does uh, an individual that's just a member uh, get their VSO to uh, grasp grasp the whole of this? Well, uh, one thing they can do is they can uh, they can send me an email. I have the plan. The plan is articulated and written out for the creation of suicide prevention officers. I actually wrote the plan out when I was appointed by the DAV. I, I was their department suicide prevention officer for all of four and a half weeks. But as soon as I thought this was so important, even though I'm running the channel, as soon as I was appointed, I realized, I said, well, I haven't really written the plan out the way that it should be because it was more like more of an idea. So the plan is totally written out now. So anyone who wants to see this plan, all they have to do is just contact me, and it's free. I will send you the plan in its entirety to take a look at it. You can share that with uh, the, the members of your VSOs and with the leadership of your VSOs. All right. Bill? Well, gentlemen, you know, one of the things that I think can, uh, can help, I mean, there's so many areas and places where you can start to get into this to make this uh, – a meaningful awareness, uh, because Glenn, as you mentioned, uh, whether it's 20 or 22 a day uh, that uh, we're observing as committing suicides, but to get behind the scenes of what this is all about. For an example, uh, and, and you know, time doesn't permit us to get into all the specifics, but to look at the demographics as to where this is happening in terms of uh, from Vietnam to the most recent uh, uh, wars that our folks have been in conflict, where, where are these suicides occurring? Uh, uh, in addition to that, um, are women veterans who have served and how that their suicide rate is so significantly higher than women in our general population. And, and, and I think if we get a closer feel and being able to touch and understand where and how 
these conditions are coming about, uh, uh, hopefully that will uh, register uh, upon our minds that, that we've got a situation here where it's, uh, you know, that we all have some contribution to, uh, to make. And, you know, one of the things, Glenn, that I think, and, and most people are really astonished when we begin to talk about, you know, uh, being able to prepare uh, foods uh, uh, and our diet to help the calmness to uh, I- impact our emotional conditions, hopefully to uh, impact on this suicide approach. So there's so many of those things that in the background that we just don't hear about. We hear about the number, but we don't know actually what's driving these numbers to where they are, and I think that can be very helpful to our, our, our folks out in the, in the listening audience and into the <coughs> veteran service organizations. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, and that's why we came up with our new show, the Cooking for Veterans Mental and Physical Health Show. It's a very powerful uh, show. It's the first time that in the history that I know of that I can, I've been able to find that a cooking show that is being done to introduce foods that actually help with uh, alleviate the symptoms of mental health. Things, the symptoms that are associated with PTSD. Foods can change your mood. Foods can uh, change your attitude. Um, foods have very direct physical correlations that things that they do to the body, their glandular, what the, the secretions do to, to help you. Uh, it started off for me when I created this show was, I started thinking about um, tryptophan. I, I often wondered, like, during uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas, I would eat that turkey and dressing. You know how we always love to eat that? <laughs> yes. And it would make me drowsy afterwards. And I used to think, turkey always makes me drowsy. And I looked into <laughs> it uh, years ago and found, oh, it's something in there called tryptophan. And then I started wondering, I, I was like, can this be used? medicinally to calm somebody because man after i eat that good turkey dinner man i'm so calm i'm ready to take a nap usually i don't know if most people are and so i began to look into that uh because of something that had happened with another veteran that uh me and um um a veteran uh um another veteran had to talk a veteran out of committing suicide um and it was quite dramatic and I began to understand that tryptophan, when used in the right combination with a complex carbohydrate, turns to serotonin, and serotonin is a good mood secretion in the body that regulates moods that can change a bad mood to a good mood. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. After I began to research and understand Foods are powerful. I began to see online that there is an entire science dedicated to how food can help uh, with the uh, symptoms of mental illness, depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, TBI. I mean, food is very, very powerful. God gave us, our Father gave us the answers to to all of the medicinal, all of the ailments that we have, most all of them from what I'm learning, if we just learn what to eat, 
how to eat, and how to prepare it. All right. So Glenn, I, why you, uh, go yeah. ahead. I'm sorry. I was just so, going to ask you so, to. You, you told me a story yesterday about a spice. And, oh and your, yeah, your I sure testimonial did. And, on that. But because I believe in trying things myself. So what I found out, and I have shared with you guys, because I suffer with PTSD myself, and I've been on this particular medication and I was working with the channel and it seemed like it was slowing down my mental processes and I was getting very very frustrated and so I did some study and I found out about cinnamon everyone cinnamon is one of those spices that that works directly with the brain it actually, you don't even have to eat cinnamon for it to work. You can smell it. <laughs> it's an amazing right. spice. And I want everyone, because I don't have time to tell you about it, but just go on and look up, put in cinnamon slash uh, the brain or cinnamon slash mental illness on your search engine. And there's going to be so much information that's going to pop up, but I can give you a personal testimony because I started using cinnamon just in the last two weeks, and my memory has improved immensely. All so right. that's just one, um, that's, that's just giving you an example of how food can work to help. You have to remember, the brain's food is glucose. If you if you if you don't know this, that's what powers the brain, and so you you know you can control so many many things by the type of glucose that you and when you you run that run and when you eat. So this thing I went through with this veteran was this veteran was in crisis, and as he was in crisis, we ta- I talked to him about an hour, hour and a half, trying to talk him down. Then he kept saying. You know, I haven't eaten anything all day, you know, and I've just been so upset. I haven't eaten anything. And so finally, when I got him kind of calmed down, I said, hey, man, what you, what, you know, why don't you eat yourself something? Not because I knew that medicine was food at that time, but I thought if he ate something, he would feel better. Well, it went further than that. After he, you know, he said, oh, I got a little something in the house. He fixed it while we were talking. And I noticed after a few minutes after he started eating that his attitude improved immensely. And that's what started me thinking about the power of food. The great thing about it is we have two superior chefs, both of them are veterans, that are going to be hosting this show, the Cooking for Veterans Mental and Health Show. And we have a crowdfunding event that's going on right now on Indiegogo.com. You can participate, anyone can participate in that crowdfunding event by going to our website, www.vspchannel.com and you'll see Cooking for Veterans Mental and Physical Health Show. If you click on that, that'll take you right to our Indiegogo crowdfunding. All right. So I hope you will um, do a little research for yourself, and I hope that you will support this wonderful project because we have a lot of veterans that are on many, many medications, Mm -hmm. and uh, we need to also... um, make sure that we emphasize the natural things that can help heal veterans and bring healing to their lives. 
That's correct. That's correct. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a break. Uh, just again, we can call this show dedicated to the Veteran Suicide Prevention Channel because let me tell you the importance of this organization. They're one of the very few nonprofit veteran organizations that have been chosen for inclusion on the Department of Veterans Affairs private online system nationwide. They need your help with funding, which goes into the production of the first five pilot shows of the cooking show that will and can save lives. This is the first of its kind with two of the top military chefs, like uh, like Glenn said, and are going to present recipes for mental and physical health. As of today, you can be part of that history also by becoming a supporter for the Cooking for Mental and Physical Health show. Go to the VSPchannel.com and click on their funding link. You can also go to the AmericanHeroesNetwork.com news section where we also have a link for their funding. You're listening to the American Heroes Network Radio, powered by Voice America on the Variety Channel, and we'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. For those corporations or organizations who wish to support our veterans, sponsoring and promotion on the American Heroes Network has never been easier or smarter. As the only network focused to specifically reach the military and veteran population globally. For more information, email us at sponsorinfo at americanheroesnetwork.com. By providing a unique blend of information and advocacy, we are helping our American heroes and their families to heal, successfully transition into civilian life, and to thrive in their communities. This generation will not be forgotten. Today's military are our sons and daughters. Listen live to the American Heroes Network, the worldwide voice for our military families and veterans, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. All shows are archived on American Heroes network.com and syndicated on iTunes. You are tuned into American Heroes Network. If you want to find out more about us or to contact us with questions or comments about the show, please send an email to American Heroes Network at gmail.com. That's American Heroes Network at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. And Bill, that was a pretty interesting segment, our last half hour, the first half hour, wasn't it? Outstanding, Gary. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and introduce our second guest, Dr. Mark Russell? Certainly with honor. Today, we have with us in this segment Dr. Mark Russell who is a retired Navy commander and clinical psychologist with more than 26 years of military service, including 10 years enlisted time in the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, Dr. Russell is the son of a Korean and Vietnam War veteran and a proud father of two Afghanistan War veterans. Dr. Russell is dual board certified by the American Board of Professional Psychology and Clinical Psychology and Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology. He is the lead author of groundbreaking research on the generational cycle of preventable wartime behavioral health crisis and the book, Treating Traumatic Stress Injuries, in military personnel. 
He is the recipient of the Distinguished Psychologist Award by the Washington State Psychologist Association for his sustained effort to transform military mental health care. Dr. Russell is the establishing director of Antioch University's Institute of War Stress, Injury, Recovery, and Social Justice, dedicated to promote equality of mental health and physical health. And uh, he's also uh, connected with, uh, thank you for your service, the Tom Donahue and Ian Arboleda producers premiered at the 2015 NYC Film Festival, New York City, 2016, Best Documentary GI Film Festival. Dr. Russell, welcome to the American Heroes Network. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Welcome. All right. Now, I see that you also, the Best Documentary 2016, that's pretty good. Um, and again, thank you for your service. And Thank you. Uh, let, me, let me ask you something. Uh, compared to, you know, there's hundreds of films out there for veterans' issues. What's, the, what's so unique about um, uh, Thank You for Your Service? Yeah, um, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, you know, this is, the I think, the first film uh, that I've ever seen, um, and I've seen a lot of them, you know, over the different generations that have been done on, on war. Um, but this is the first film they actually talk about a mental health crisis in the military uh, that is repetitive in nature and caused primarily due to the systemic neglect of uh, the lessons of war uh, by the military. So we have uh, folks like Secretary of Defense Robert Gates and Joint Chief of Staff Michael Mullins and um, Senator Patty Murray and other distinguished leaders, uh, both Congress and in the military, uh, both candidly giving their assessment of what can and should have been done uh, in the current wars in order to meet mental health needs and what wasn't done. All right. Glenn, do you have a question? It's, it's tough to see your hand raised over there. <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, very, um, I'm very glad to meet you. I think that, uh, first of all, let me commend you for the outstanding work that you're doing. I, I haven't read your um, your book yet, but I intend to, uh, because uh, it's people, dedicated professionals like yourself that I've learned a, a lot from, as well as uh, veterans' personal experiences. Um, I'd like to ask you, what, what are the psychiatric lessons of war, and, and, and why is it important for the military to learn them? Right, uh, great question, Glenn. So... Um, the military, as in all businesses, uh, pay a lot of attention to what I call lessons learned. So when there's an accident or there's an event, we usually analyze and kind of what went right and what went wrong and how to prevent you know, the same mistakes repeating in the future. Uh, and so the military, after every war, documents and, and publishes its lessons learned in battlefield tactics and weapon development, uh, battlefield medicine, you know, saving folks from the physical wounds of war, as well as the psychiatric wounds of war. And so what I've done is I've gone through, oh, since the First World War, what are the military's own documented lessons in regards to war trauma? 
And, uh, and what we see is that uh, a, a kind of repetitive theme where the military says, well, in this war, we ignored our prior lessons from other cohorts, and, and now we had to go back and relearn these lessons. But we don't see that in, in battlefield medicine or weapons technology or tactics. So the importance is, if you look at battlefield medicine, for example, in the days of, uh, let's say, Alexander, you know, if you had any type of a wound in war, you had about a 3% survivability rate. And this is due often to infections and diseases. Um, in fact, during the American Civil War, I believe more people died from disease and infections than they did from the actual, uh, you know, being killed in action. Uh, but what changed this around in, to, in today's day and age, 97% of men and women wounded and sometimes severely wounded in the uh, battlefields are surviving these physical wounds. And that's a direct result of the policies and personnel that are in place in the military to both document these lessons learned and to distribute those so that we don't forget that. It becomes part of our institutional DNA. Uh, but on the converse, when it comes to the mental health lessons, as I, as I surmised, um, we don't learn the lessons. In fact, we, the military leaders very candidly will tell you, as you will see in the film, thank you for your service, that we ignored these lessons at our own peril and to the peril of those who actually serve in combat. And as a result, uh, since World War II, the total number of psychiatric casualties has outnumbered the combined total of those who are physically wounded in war and killed in action. And that's been a trend, again, started since World War II and is continuing uh, well into uh, the 21st century. A direct reason why it's important to learn what are the lessons of war, and in, in, in particular, the psychiatric lessons of war. Right. Wow, thank you. That, that was pretty good. Um, yeah. Can I, uh, I'd like to ask you one other thing. Have you discovered outside of the studies that you've done for the military the importance of uh, family when um, uh, combatants, uh, people, military people return back home? Is there a correlation in terms that, in those terms, that are more beneficial to veterans who have responsive family members? Oh, no question. Again, this is, that is one of the uh, ten what I call foundational lessons of war trauma is that need to ensure adequate family support both during and after military service. And there's been uh, plenty of research. You can go all the way back to the Civil War, the American Civil War, showing that uh, the response from family members and friends in the community uh, have a, a significant impact on the adjustment and the readjustment of veterans when they come back. And so what is true in the 21st century are, is true you know, during the Vietnam War and true during um, the First World War and so on. And again, the, there's ample documentation, and, and the military itself recognizes the need to provide family support and, and you know, has done its best to do that, um, you know, generally after the fact. But as far as planning when we go to war, what is the level of support that's needed for families during wartime? We have continually missed that mark, and which is why uh, we have these crises um, during after every major war. Are you planning? Is this planning? Uh, this film planning on going around the country? Uh, what's that now? Uh, the film, the, oh, the yeah. documentary. 
Yeah, so it's been, uh, I think it's been shown probably in every state, and it's going to uh-huh. be released uh, theatrically, uh, I believe, in October. Okay. Uh, and it'll be shown in different major cities, and then um, it will be distributed uh, to be determined whether it's HBO or Netflix or something along the like. Uh-huh. And just to let everyone know. Do you think know, it might be possible for the VSP channel to also be able to uh, distribute the film on our channel? Oh, absolutely. If, uh, if you give me, uh, I can put you in contact with the film producers, and I'm mm-hmm. sure they would be uh, more than thrilled to send you the movie uh, to be able to show on the network. All right. Once our, show is, once our show is archived, I'll go ahead and put the, uh, the trailer on there. That way uh, they'll get a, a taste of the uh, documentary. Okay? Yep. And Bill? Well, Dr. Russell, you, you, you know, uh, with the uh, periods of war that we've been involved in, and I would say in recent modern times, that if, if uh, by way of miracle we could silence every uh, weapon on the battlefield, mm-hmm. we would continue to see the residual reflect, uh, effects of uh, those conflicts in years to come. And if we go back... Uh, uh, to World War II, where uh, men and women now who served in that uh, in that war are well into their 90s and plus uh, beyond the century mark, and those who are in the recent uh, conflicts in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, if you could just briefly describe some of the types of combat stresses that have come down through that particular time uh, with our men and women who serve, and how would you uh, rate the advancement and recovery from these conditions over the years? Uh, That's a really good question. Uh, So, you know, what we see is that the stresses of war have have not fundamentally changed uh, over time. Uh, what has changed, of course, is the weapon technology and uh, that battlefield tactics uh, uh, are certainly, you know, variable from war to war, uh, whether it's a kind of more guerrilla or asymmetrical warfare or if it's your kind of uh, classic symmetry where you have the good guys and bad guys with clear lines of demarcation. Um, and we see that in the wars where there is more of a blurry, the asymmetrical wars, it's harder to find, to identify uh, foe from friend, as you see in the uh, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but also in Vietnam. Uh, that you know these are these are particularly more uh, difficult and stressful environments because you can never, there is no safety in the back lines, you know, because you could be in a truck, in a convoy, a supply truck, or uh, in a hospital, but could easily become, you know, targets during a war uh, of that nature. So uh, we find that in, in these types of kind of asymmetrical wars that the uh, uh, we can expect uh, even larger numbers of psychiatric casualties and many that may not be kind of your classic PTSD or, or shell shock variety, but might kind of show itself in what the Army calls uh, misconduct stress behaviors which is where uh, individuals are, 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 their capacity to deal with the stress is exceeded and they start to engage in often very uncharacteristic behaviors and moral transgressions. Uh, so you see uh, higher incidence of atrocities or uh, crimes committed, uh, even uh, crimes committed on, on your own troops, whether it's fragging or uh, sexual trauma. Uh, 
uh, and or that you see folks engaging in misconduct when they get back from the war zones involving drug use or other uh, behaviors that get the attention of the legal uh, services. So these folks are going through the legal channels of the military, coming back from the war zone and, you know, face jail time or bad conduct discharges, um, which, um, again, is part of every war, but you see the, uh, that those incidences are even heightened when you have these kinds of uh, more guerrilla or asymmetrical wars. And, Dr. Russell, I would imagine that in a more recent conflicts that we've been involved in, especially Iraq and Afghanistan, where we've had these repetitive deployments ranging anywhere per individual from uh, one to eight deployments certainly hasn't helped this situation and made it more difficult for for recovery. Well, yeah, I think you uh, hit it on the head. Uh, the, the level of exposure to combat stress, which... Uh, we talked a little earlier about kind of the research and what's, what do we know about the effects of war stress is that the number one predictor of a war stress injury like PTSD is the level of exposure to combat stress. And the levels of exposure that the current generation of the all-volunteer military are experiencing you know, far exceeds anything even of uh, the World War II generation or Vietnam, uh, both just in terms of length and the multiplicity. Uh, but that's a lesson we learned, in, again, in World War I and World War II. Uh, back in, after the First World War, the military conducted analysis of what is the average number of days in combat before your average infantry uh, soldier would succumb to a war stress injury. And the, uh, I believe the, uh, the total then was 88 days. So 88 days of combat, you can expect that over 90% of an infantry battalion will be wiped out it will become psychiatric casualties. That's the effect of combat ex- exposure. So we, we kind of learned that lesson in Vietnam where we said, okay, we're going to send people over for a year only and not have these protracted deployments, you know, like you did in World War I, World War II, Korea, which is you don't leave until the war is over uh, or you're wounded and you get evacuated. So in Vietnam, we experimented with these year-long tours, and that created some unintended uh, consequences of we're separating people from their units, and there's a great deal of traumatic grief and, and pain and angst for both those who, were, who left their buddies in the war zone and those who remained in the war zone. Um, and then you've got the current situation, as you described, which is you have multiple deployments, six, seven, uh, you know, anywhere from six months to 12 to 18 months in duration. And, uh, and, and without doubt, that has created... You know, an exacerbation of, of the level of uh, war stress injuries that we see and, you know, the suicide epidemics that everybody is talking about. Uh, okay. If I might, I'll give you an example again where this is a failure of our ability to learn lessons that the military is very well documented. Um, the British, on the other hand, learned their lesson, and they, uh, they had some soldiers in 2003 that sued the MOD, which is the equivalent to the DOD, Department of Defense, and they, they sued the MOD because of the lack of provisions for PTSD treatment while they were on active duty. And it was a class action suit, um, great deal of attention in Europe, not so much in the U.S., but it resulted in an unprecedented victory for soldiers that uh, were awarded uh, high levels of, uh, kind of monetary compensation 
for the military's failure or their neglect to provide adequate mental health services while on active duty. And as a consequence, the uh, British military has a policy, uh, deployment policy, which limits the amount of exposure uh, that soldiers, British soldiers, are um, expected uh, to endure. And so they limit both the number of deployments, they, they have very strict guidelines on dwell time, how long uh, do people stay in garrison before they redeploy, and they also limit the total number of months in a combat zone because they're trying to implement the lessons learned on combat exposure. And the consequence is they have about a 4% PTSD rate uh, and, and kind of given the same levels of combat exposure like in Afghanistan as U.S. personnel, and 4% PTSD is compared to the U.S., which, depending on what study you look at, varies anywhere from 10 to 40% uh, PTSD rate. So a significant reduction and uh, PTSD uh, itself, just on that one kind of policy change that uh, proven very effective for the UK. Well, I, I'll just tell you briefly, I, I had the opportunity to meet a command sergeant major who was uh, in the Special Forces, had 10 deployments between Afghanistan and Iraq. He started out... Uh, uh, early on, working with the Taliban when they were in conflict with the Russians, trained the uh, Taliban, uh, came back uh, uh, when the Taliban is fighting against us, captured uh, members of the Taliban who recall him training them when they were in conflict with the Russians. Right. Yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, and there's a great deal of... Uh, a lore, I would call it, or myth, that special forces are immune to war stress injury. And sometimes you hear officials cite, you know, the role of training and discipline and leadership as a way to uh, ameliorate the effects of war stress, that, you know, that essentially you could be immune to the effects of war stress by virtue of your training or your, uh, your, your the level of discipline and leadership. And so, um, you know, again, there's a great deal of misconception that those folks, especially in the uh, special forces, um, who are, you know, bearing the, the great deal of the burden in terms of combat deployments, uh, that they somehow are immune from it. And, and what some of the studies are showing recently is that it's far from the, the truth. In fact, uh, at least one study shows that the, the incidence of or stress injury is actually higher than in the special forces than in, in the general um, regular army. Um, but that uh, that was only done because of uh, the way they, they did the surveys was it was anonymous so that uh, there's no way that the uh, special first forces member could be linked to their responses to a survey so that they might, you know, lose their, uh, their um, you know, credentials or their security clearances and so on. So, when given the opportunity to speak frankly, what we're hearing is that the Special Forces and their families are taking a particular hit when it comes to these deployments. But again, the, the mythos and the cultural mythos of the uh, Special Forces warriors that they are invulnerable, and so it creates even um, exacerbates the amount of stigma and the barriers that these uh, personnel and their families face when they, when they do need help. Right. A few minutes ago, you uh, used the word uh, epidemic. 
Uh, I think when you were relating to uh, the present crisis of uh, veterans killing themselves and military pers- on active duty military personnel, I'd like to yeah. know uh, if you could just for us explain uh, the definition of uh, an epidemic. <laughs> definition of an epidemic. I'll give you this, uh, the Mark Russell definition. It may not be uh, you know, out of the Wikipedia def- you know, dictionary, but uh, you know, an epidemic would be where you have uh, you know, heightened uh, prevalence and increase a number that, is, uh, that occurs within a specified time so that it over- overwhelming numbers within a, sh- a short period of time. Um, it's kind of what I would view as an epidemic. And um, there's been a lot of discussion back and forth whether the suicides in the military or the veterans is is a true epidemic caused by the effects of war stress or is it just, you know, kind of uh, the normal uh, mainstream uh, levels of suicide you would have in the private sector. And um, when when you actually look at the prevalence, and I think one year in your previous uh, discussion with the, uh, the folks working on the suicide prevention angle, they talked about female suicides amongst female veterans being significantly higher than female um, suicides in the private sector. That's, that's one indicator that there's an epidemic. That's, that's, this is beyond what you would expect um, you know, for a normal population. Uh, the other would be the fact that in the active duty side, um, when I did some research on this uh, published last year. At that time last year, there were, uh, I think, 5,383 active duty suicides, which exceeded the number of those killed in action, which is uh, uh, 5,333. And and we saw the same thing happen at the first Gulf War. Uh, Again, more active duty suicides than those killed in action. So Although we can't say, and, and certainly would be proper to say that war itself does not cause someone to kill themselves, take their own lives, it certainly is a major contributor to it, and it's something we've known, you know, since again, uh, at least the American Civil War, that this is one of the, uh, you know, consequences of repeated exposure or chronic exposure to war stress, and that we ought to be having adequate planning and preparation, both during peace and wartime to meet the mental health needs, uh, whether it's dealing with suicide or PTS or any other uh, types of war stress injury. Right. Mark, sir, we do only have a couple minutes left. It was a pleasure having you on our show today. What would you like to share with our listeners in closing? Yeah, uh, so what I would like to share is please go see this film. Thank you for your service. Uh, It will be a real eye-opener, and one of the things I'll leave is that Despite these statements that uh, from these, the top military officials, uh, again, the Secretary of Defense and the top congressional leaders, that we've had these repetitive crises after every war, there has never yet been a congressional investigation into the causes of these preventable crises. Um, so we've had congressional hearings on steroids and porn rock and mating habits of mollusks, but we've never evaluated or examined why do we continue to um, ignore uh, these psychiatric lessons of war, which lead to these uh, the kind of more preventable aspects of war crises. So um, I would say please see the film and then, um, you know, kind of uh, let your conscience follow you there if you want to contact your congressman to ask for a hearing or investigation. That would certainly be a good step in trying to, uh, to end this cycle. All right. 
Thank you, and thank you for being on the show. Bill and yep. Glenn, thank you. If you missed thank any you. of our live shows, all our shows are archived on demand 24-7 on our website and syndicated on iTunes. You can also hear all the archived shows right from your phone, and remember, we spotlight and promote the best available information of interest to America's veterans and their families anytime, anywhere, and on any mobile device. I'm Gary Ray, along with Bill, and thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of American Heroes Network. Please join Gary Ray again next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a great week. We are America, and we truly do believe you're the backbone of our nation. Family.